0: Keith here, inviting you to imagine that Live from the Lounge is actually live and that you're with us in person. Imagine. You've got a drink in your hand, you're swaying to the music, laughing a little, and we come to that moment in the show where we pass around a hat and ask you to share with us as we've shared with you. How much do you imagine you'd put in that hat? 10 bucks, 20, 100? If you like what you hear, Consider dropping a little something into our virtual hat at livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com. The donate button's right there at the top of the landing page. It's quick, it's easy, and it's greatly appreciated. Hey there. Welcome to the lounge. Wait. What is that? Hang on. Hello, little kitty cat. How did you get in here? Hey, what's happening? What, what, What do you have in your mouth? Oh my god. No, 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 no. Stay away from me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to October, the April Fools of Autumn. As usual, we've got stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. And right now, tis the season to be scary. (laughs) John Ballinger will be along shortly to share with us a song or two inspired by skeletons and ghosts. The extraordinary artist Rose Portillo and I will talk about the transformational power of art and how that connects to her epic parties that celebrate the Day of the Dead. Matt Olmos will share a story that'll make you believe the devil is real. Double Batch Daddy bring us an original tune about the autumn moon that I know you're going to love. And later on, I'll talk a little bit about the thrill of playing in the dark. So, here we are. The northern hemisphere is moving away from the sun, the trees are taking their cue, and the stunning blend of reds and golds and yellows is well underway. Sunrise in Los Angeles came at 6:49 today, and it'll be dark by 6:33 this evening. The daylight is waning. The nights are getting longer. Folks are chopping and stacking firewood in preparation for the cold that's coming. Farmers are bringing in the last of the summer harvest before the first frost hits. By the end of October, it'll be time to fire up the oven for roasted squash and apple pie. And we'll be experimenting to see if there's any dish pumpkin spice can't make tastier. It's getting to be sweater season. Time to don a turtleneck or a fleece hoodie and head out to the stadium to cheer on the home team as they run back and forth defending their goal from the marauding thugs from across town. Maybe you'll grab one of those awkwardly shaped balls yourself and throw it around as the sun goes down, stopping only when it's too cold or too dark to be fun anymore. Then maybe you'll come inside for a hot cider and a warm hug. October is the season of the homecoming. We're getting used to the rhythm of being back at school or work. Maybe it's time to blow off a little steam. Time to don a nice suit or a formal dress, purchase a corsage or a boutonniere for that special someone in our lives, and step out for a fancy dinner and a night of dancing. After all, it's such a very grown-up thing to do. And then there's Oktoberfest, of course. I have to admit, I was very excited to dig into the history and lore of this titular Teutonic festival. What's the source of all this revelry, I wondered. What do the costumes mean? Where do these dances that everyone seems to know come from? Why do you need suspenders built into your shorts? It must be related to the harvest, I thought. A celebration of the bounty provided by the earth. Why else would the pretzels and beers be so huge? Turns out, Oktoberfest is just a beer festival that was started by a beer maker in Germany a long time ago. It caught on. And why wouldn't it? Sometimes it's just that simple. We like food and beer and being together. Laughter and dancing are fun. Do we need an elaborate excuse to do these things? Not always. I've noticed that For some reason, October contains a lot of opportunities to dress up. Little ones don costumes and parade about the streets, ordering adults to give them candy under threat of playing a trick. Our teen males struggle to pin a flower to a strapless dress without becoming completely undone. And the Germans invite us to break out the dress-up hiking boots and the extra petticoats and kick up our heels. The fact is, we just need to strut our stuff a little bit every once in a while. And on the way home from the dance, with a belly full of hard cider and bratwurst, we might take a moment to look up at the autumn moon and ponder how it's growing darker and colder, and that as long as we have loved ones around, that doesn't seem too scary at all that's the gist of this new tune from Double Batch Daddy. It's called Neath a Low, Waning Moon. Neath a low, waning moon.
1: Late in the year, I'm struck by the size as it just starts to rise. And the streetlights come So sweet, reflecting the sun long gone, and the nights grow longer now, and the nights will grow longer still. that might have been
0: As the world grows darker in autumn, it's a good time to take time to face our fears with the tradition of the scary story. Here's a true story of an encounter with the devil, told by Matt Almos. You're eight years
2: old, and you're lying in bed. It's 9.45 on a school night, but you're still awake. You're curled up under the covers, in the dark, Eyes closed, listening. You can hear your parents watching television downstairs. You can't see what they're watching, but you can faintly hear it. They're watching a movie, and in that movie, an innocent child has been possessed by the devil. You've seen scary movies before, but Frankenstein and Dracula are make-believe. What your parents are watching right now could actually happen to you. Because the devil is real. You attend church with your family every Sunday. You never quite understand what the priests are talking about. They hardly ever talk about hell or the devil in your church. It doesn't matter. You know there's a God, and you know Jesus Christ was his son. You know that there's a heaven, and you know there's a hell. God and the devil are a package deal. You can't believe in one without the other, or the whole system doesn't make sense. The devil is real, and he is the ruler of hell. If you go to hell, the devil will torment you forever in a lake of fire. One time some older kids at school showed you that you could run your hand through a flame and if you went quickly enough, you didn't get burned. Still, you could feel the heat in that fleeting millisecond that your hand touched the fire. Imagine being stuck in the middle of that flame forever. Imagine burning in hell for all eternity. You look at the clock on your nightstand. It's 11 o'clock. You're wide awake. You know what the devil looks like. You've seen pictures of him. He looks like a man. He has a mustache and a beard. He has horns on his head. You also know that the devil comes to earth. He possesses incredible power. And he's hungry for more. If he feels like it, he possesses small children and babies. So the devil is in hell, on earth, and can actually enter your body. He could be anywhere. He could be anywhere at any time. He could be in the room with you right now, watching you. Can he tell that you're thinking of him right now? Is he angry that your parents are treating his power as a source of entertainment? You pray to God and Jesus for protection, but it seems to you that they're hesitant to take action against the devil. Otherwise, why would they let an innocent child be possessed and tormented and tortured? You hear the television downstairs getting turned off. A couple of minutes later, you hear the door to your parents' bedroom closing. You listen very carefully until you faintly hear a soft snap from the other side of the house. That's the last light getting turned off. The house is completely dark. You remember that sometimes the devil is called the Prince of Darkness. With each minute that creeps forward, you hear a faint click from the clock next to your bed as one number flaps down and becomes another. With each faint, you're reminded that you're still awake. You look at the clock and see that it's past midnight now. The only person in this pitch dark house who's still awake is you. You wonder if you're ever going to fall asleep again. You try everything you can to shut off your mind that races around between images of lakes of fire and babies with spinning heads and hooves clip-clopping softly down the hallway toward your room. Who's next? It's two in the morning now. You have to fall asleep. You have to fall asleep. But still you think of him. If he could possess a child without God or Jesus stopping him, what else could he do? Could he rule the world? Could he turn the earth into hell? Would you be forced to worship him? You imagine sitting in your church surrounded by beautiful stained glass windows of doves and saints and then watching those colors slowly swirl and melt into each other, reforming into images of demons and violence and him. Who's next? Could that happen? You know it could. Because the devil is real. Three o'clock. The entire city is asleep, except for you. The trees outside your window are still. No wind, just silent darkness. Then there's a creak on the stair. If he were to visit you, is that how he'd do it? Would he just walk in the door? Another creak on the floorboard. This one's inside the room. You lay perfectly still and close your eyes and pretend to sleep. And listen, another creak right next to you. Or oh, that your clock? Was it a breath or a gust of wind? You close your eyes tighter than ever, refusing to confirm his presence through the layers of blankets, the light pressure of a warm hand resting on your back.
3: Who's
1: next? <laughs>
2: It's morning, 40 years later. You sit up and turn off your alarm. Your spouse remains sleeping as you turn on the shower and quietly get ready for your day. After showering, getting dressed, and eating a sensible breakfast, you climb into your car and pull out of the driveway. The sun climbs over the horizon as you drive down the street and merge onto the freeway in the direction of your job. Over time, you've learned more about the devil He rarely appears in the dark, but is a fairly common sight in broad daylight. More often than not, he appears in the newsfeed of your various social media apps. Every now and then you'll see him in line ahead of you at the supermarket, screaming at the bag boy. You've seen him yanking his dog around by the neck. You've watched him growing his wealth bigger and bigger, without regard to the consequences to anyone or anything. The last time you saw him, he caused a spin-out racing down this very freeway and did not bother to stop and see if anyone was hurt. He just shot past you in a bright yellow Chevy Camaro. At some point, you realized he's actually not after you. He doesn't even know you're there. Seems like he's more interested in grabbing hold of people who are really powerful or people who are really vulnerable. You? You're somewhere in the middle. And you'd rather not get involved, which makes you kind of invisible to him. So you don't hide from him anymore. But you don't fight him either. That used to make you feel guilty. But you got over it. You just go about your day until the day turns to night. And you curl up under your covers, closing your eyes tight and falling asleep to the sound the stairs.
0: Who's next? Matt Almos and his wife, Carol, write all of the radio plays for Live from the Lounge. We'll be right back for a conversation with Rose Portillo. L.A. Animal Services is more than a place to find your next pet. With six locations throughout the City of Los Angeles, LA Animal Services also offers support services for pet families like the pet food pantry and monthly advice panels for dog, cat, and rabbit guardians. Another thing LA Animal Services offers is a chance for animal lovers to make a difference by getting involved. You can have a positive impact on animals in our community by adopting or by joining the team as a foster parent or a volunteer. Find information on how to access services and how to get involved at LAAnimalServices.com. Rose Portillo is a true artist. She's an actress with a list of television and film credits going back to the sitcom Chico and the Man from the 1970s. But it's her work on stage that is the most stunning. She created the role of Della in the world premiere production of Zoot Suit here in Los Angeles back in 1978 and went on to Broadway, playing the role. In the recent revival, she came back in the role of Henry's mother, Dolores. Rose is also a graphic artist, a maker of mosaics, and an arts educator. But it's her legendary parties honoring the Dia de los Muertos that I wanted to talk to her about. Tell us a little bit about the Dia de los Muertos, and can you com- kind of compare and contrast it to a Halloween?
4: Absolutely nothing to do with Halloween. Absolutely nothing. It's a little sad. The Dia de los Muertos in Mexico has become a little uh, Americanized with Halloween and, and a little confused, and that's a little uh, disconcerting. But my family did not celebrate that. They thought it was creepy and weird. And only the peasants do that. It wasn't until I went to an event at Self-Help Graphics, the artists in East LA really started bringing the tradition back big time. And Sister Karen Bocalero, who founded Self-Help Graphics, um, encouraged it and so there was this amazing parade down the street and through the cemetery and then landing at um self-help and then the artist made the altars and when i walked in and saw those altars i had come home and i had no words to explain it but i immediately started um making altars at my home and um having open houses on the day. And then I started doing altars in, in, there at self-help and uh, various galleries and stuff um, because it's it is, it is a, it's a welcoming, it's a blessing in order to be blessed. Its roots are deep in, in the culture. And it's like, I, I feel the energy just just come from the earth up through the body, right? And then just kind of explode out, um, and I know who's come, and um, I look at the altar, and they—they all blessed it. They were all there, and it is necessary. It—it it is an, a necessary um, tonic, if you will, uh, to to remember to be remembered. Um, the bastards as well. The ones who hurt me as well, you know.
0: For people who never heard of Dia de los Muertos, can you right. talk a little bit about that process of what an what the altar is, how it works, how you build it, how your intention helps so, it so to come So
4: traditionally, um, it has a, a pyramid shape. So it's wide at the bottom and it narrows as it goes up. So so very very much like that.
0: The, the altars are are built for family members who have passed on
4: correct one must be passed on <laughs> to get an altar you got to be dead
0: <laughs> it is the day of the dead after all
4: <laughs> and, they, and there are two it, there are um, the days of the dead it's the first and the second of uh, november um the first is for children and saints saints and angels and then um <laughs> the second day is for the rest of us poor bastards <laughs> So, um, so we put up photographs, uh, foods, or or trinkets, things that they liked, um, things that will entice them to return and and know that they were remembered and bless us in the year to come. Um, flowers. Uh, I always invite people to bring a photograph, or uh, or a flower, or a memento, um, and but I also just leave pieces of paper around that they can just write names on and ways to add to the altars.
0: If I came to your house for a Dia de los Muertos celebration, what would I experience?
4: I am very traditional with the sound. So there's a lot of Edie Gourmet, a lot of mariachis, a lot of uh, Santa Cecilia, because she honors the the tradition. There is um, drink, there is food, uh, traditionally tamales, but but these days that got a little difficult. So I make a huge pot of pozole. Food and drink and talk about who's on the altar for you. Who's there for you this year? I'll tell you who's there for me this year. Um, the whole house where I live, I live in the family home. So um, it, it's complicated.
0: This is a an ancestral home for you. What is the history of...
4: So, um, the house was built in 1927. It's a little freaky to realize it's almost 100 years old. Um, My grandparents moved in the year I was born, so I'm outing myself in 1953. Uh, I took care of my grandfathers, both of them in this home. It was not always a pleasant atmosphere, Um, so I insisted that it go through a transformation. Uh, Roger, my husband started work on renovating as much as he could, making it nice and solid for us. And, and, uh, and then I started painting the walls and turned it into a, an art installation.
0: Was that a healing process for you? Absolutely. Is there a moment when you realized that you were processing or letting go of or I,
4: I, I knew that before I walked in, uh, that that, I, that it would involve a lot of processing um, and it would involve transformation. And interestingly enough, that the healing would not just be for me. That's maybe not so interesting. The interesting part is that a lot of the healing I knew would be for my grandmother as well, even though she was deceased. And for my father as well, even though he was deceased. I think that's the only way I can be here happily i i don't think i could continue to have lived here if i didn't feel in my bones that that actually that process occurred there's the familial healing and then there was also the healing of a divorce um i had a lot of energy and angst so i broke bottles and then i filled the bottles with paint and kind of made a a mural that way And uh, then there were certain things that uh, were precious that I broke. And that was sad. And then I looked at them and I went, hmm, well, you could be something else. I'd always been moved by um, the Watts Towers. And then, of course, Self-Help Graphics, the the original space. The exterior was all wonky mosaic. uh, And I mean that with great love and admiration. So I just started experimenting. And when we moved into this house, when we were getting this house ready for us, uh, my husband was also a, a visual artist and a carpenter. And he said, well, we need a kitchen floor. And I said, I have an idea. So I taught myself, I found it was happenstance. We walked into the tile store and off in the corner was a big pile of red, bright red tile. Yeah. <laughs> like a little kid, I went and I pulled on his shirt sleep and I said, I found it, I found it, I found it. <laughs> so. Um, or did it find you? Well, right? Yeah. So it, uh, uh, I taught myself mosaic on the kitchen floor. And then uh, the next thing was the the bathroom upstairs cause we needed a shower. And I went, no, no, no white tiles, no blank. T- no, no, no. So I found these amazing greens and blues. And, um, so that that's how it started.
0: It sounds to me like it was the process of taking a literal brokenness that that represented sort of a brokenness that you were going through and a reconstruction of your home.
4: And spirit. What I like to say, uh, whenever I'm teaching a a mosaic class is we, these squares who decided that this square wanted to be a square. This tile has so much to give and to say and, and to communicate. So we're going to smash it and then let it talk to us. I do believe that you enter into a conversation with the object, with the spirit of the object, with the spirit of the intention. And they go together. And then suddenly you've got something.
0: And that's the spirit of the ofrenda and the altars as well. Indeed. Yeah. So when you are in the midst of your Dia de los Muertos fiesta, Mm -hmm. does that party help keep your ancestors Present yeah. for you, yeah. yeah. And what does it feel like when you yeah.
4: joy? You know, and some sometimes sorrow, but uh, mostly joy, and and uh, comfort, a lot of comfort. You know, the, the the recipe for the altar is very simple. You know, a photograph, a memento, a flower, arrange it. You know, you can be traditional and do the pyramid thing. They're they're quite uh, profound, but. The spirit moves. So it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be a pyramid. It doesn't, it can be a, a table with a photograph, period. It can be a dress hanging from the ceiling. You know, it, it, there are the, the intention and, and how you choose to honor who you're thinking of. It can be one person or the many that you're thinking of.
0: Sadly, Rose won't be hosting a party this year, but she is in the process of creating a public altar that'll be on display at the Avenue 50 studio in Highland Park later this month. Will you follow Rose's lead this fall and take time to remember and honor your connection to family, the saints and the bastards too? It can be as simple as taking a trip through a photo album and it can be as elaborate as your imagination will allow. But however you choose to remember those who've gone before, I wish you a joyful and healing process.
3: Remember me Though I have to say goodbye Remember me Don't let it make you cry even if I'm far away I'll hold you in my heart I'll sing a secret song to you each night we are apart remember me though I have to travel far remember me each time you hear a sad guitar know that I until you're in my arms again remember me remember me though i have to travel far remember Time you hear a sad guitar, know that I'm with you.
0: Welcome back. It's time for the dinner and the movie segment. And I'm here with the person whom I've shared the most movies and the most dinners in my entire life. The love of my life, Ann Claus Farley.
5: Happy Halloween, It's
0: so scary, isn't it?
5: Yeah, I love October. You do. I do. The decorations have been up for a week already and um, and they keep coming out.
0: <laughs> you were ready to put them up. September 1st, yep. but we held you back.
5: <laughs> yeah.
0: So, man, we got a lot to cover. So yep. let's just get right to it. Um, scary movies. So many good ones. What could be better for Halloween? What are some of your favorites?
5: I would have to say The Shining is always a classic for sure. me um, because I feel like... That one um, stands the test of time. Kubrick has this great way of, you know, making it very operatic and timeless. And I like old movies. I'm such a Vincent Price fan.
0: House of Wax, mm-hmm. uh, all the Edgar Allan Poe stuff he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pitting the Pendulum. Mm-hmm. Cask of Amontillado. I know, I know. All that great stuff. Yeah,
5: some of them stood the test of time from my childhood fear place. And then others were like, this is terrifyingly bad. <laughs> so like.
0: <laughs> the great thing about Halloween movies, the scary movies, is that there's such so many ways in. Mm-hmm. Like from everything from Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is a very comedic scary story. Mm-hmm. To the like original Hollywood scary stories of Dracula. Right. And The Wolfman and The Mummy and all of those old movies are sort of a little bit tingly, mm-hmm. scary.
5: But then you go into Psycho.
0: Sure. And then you get into, you know, you know, what one of my favorites is Creep Show. Oh, yeah. Written totally. by Stephen King. Right. Directed by George Romero with it's like an anthology to those. So it's four or five little scary stories that Stephen King wrote like short stories. And he also stars in one of them Yeah, uh, as a guy who uh, a meteor lands in his front yard and turns him into a vegetable.
5: Right. Literally. I, mean, I love it's, Stephen King. I mean, I grew up reading his books and then, and then really just enjoyed like who can forget Tim Curry and it. Oh my gosh. And I love the new it too. It's really great.
0: Take your pick. All those things have sort of shuttled to the side as we delved into the brand new Netflix series.
5: Midnight Mass.
0: Midnight Mass. <laughs> now this movie, this series, it's a really an eight-hour movie. It is rocked our worlds. It
5: did. It did. I mean, I enjoy Mike Flanagan's uh work. We started a couple years ago with the Haunting of Hill House, which we loved because he does humanist horror where he's picks this he picked this genre, this horror genre, um, and then is exploring the idea of what scares the crap out of you most in the human sense. And um and then with Haunting of Hill House really addressing mental illness in combination with horror. So frightening. Once you see Hill House for the first time, you cannot unsee what you saw. So, so that was really incredible um, and, and intellectually stimulating and fascinating. Hmm.
0: So Mike Flanagan's back with a um, story about a community on a small island off the coast of Washington State. One of the guys from the island has gone off into the world, been extremely successful. But in the opening scenes uh, is in a horrible accident drunk driving, where he kills a young woman. He ends up in jail for four years, and when he comes out, he goes back to his island home and lives with his parents again. Also on the island, the, the monsignor that runs the Catholic Church on the island has been in the Holy Land, but he has been detained for health reasons, and in his place is a young priest Who begins to revitalize this island that has been in the midst of death and decay for a generation or more. And then things start to get weird.
5: Bonkers. It goes bonkers. I think the most amazing thing that Mike Flanagan does with this piece, which is a very personal piece for him, and uh, how is it personal? Um, well, he grew up in the Catholic faith, and um, and he struggled with addiction, and that's what he um, me- meshes with on this. Uh, in this one, I will tell you, it is a, a series of monologues, but there is this sense of listening and understanding the interior struggle of each of these characters that is reminiscent of reading a Stephen King novel. So I delighted in that fact. I know that it annoys some people. I've heard reviews where people just can't don't tolerate that sort of thing anymore. But I think Mike Fallinggan sets up the pace and tonality of this piece as not only am I going to scare you, but I'm going to reach into your mind and tear apart your drama. Right. So it's asking you to deeply think about death and mortality, and then I'm going to scare the shit out of you by ripping off the Band-Aid and making you think for yourself.
0: It's monologue heavy. But it's also sort of feels like you're in a um, a recovery meeting. Yeah, that it asks you, as you would in a, a meeting at AA or NA, uh, to sit and listen to somebody's story without interrupting. So that idea of recovery, uh, which is such a major part of it, it opens with a car crash that is right. brought about by addiction, is astonishing.
5: It really did validate my feelings about religion addiction, and the lack of communication. And what Mike Flanagan does so well, which he did with Haunting of Hill House, is hide in plain sight the details and the strings of honesty and denial. I'm just so thrilled to be able to watch a horror film that is intellectually stimulating. And maybe we should be looking at these horror movies in a way where we're actually identifying some of our issues that we have that we we can't face. I think if you're a Catholic, this will ring true on so many levels. The fun part about it, by bringing it into the horror genre, is what Mike says as a kid. He told his parents, what do you mean? We eat the body and blood of Christ. Are we vampires? And the Catholic Church is not something that hasn't been brought forth like The Exorcist. I actually just love the whole ride. I think you're going to love it or hate it. I think that's the most exciting thing about recommending something like this.
0: So we recommend this movie advisedly. Um, It goes deep into addiction and cultism. And so be warned. If those are triggers for you, maybe you want to steer clear. But uh, if you want a spectacular trip to the dark side. Uh, We can't recommend Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass highly enough.
5: It's such a treat.
0: And to pair this series with (laughs) something to eat or something to drink, I think we had to go. Both of us went straight to uh, the Bloody Mary. Although neither of us are big fans of the Bloody Mary.
5: No, I don't like it very much. I like watching other people drink it. And I like looking at recipes, the diverse recipes I'll put on the website. People do it with all sorts of fancinesses.
0: It's a gussied up tomato juice and vodka. So there's lots of different ways to gussy that up. And you can make a small meal out of it, too, with some Mm -hmm. celery and some different vegetables and things like that. Also, crack open a bottle of red wine.
5: That's a good bloody drink
0: kind of perfect uh and as far as food goes um i think the best is like a nice rare slab of steak yeah
5: and i found a really great bloody bolognese where the recipe is you know black ink squid pasta with a, just a bloody looking tomato sauce on top.
0: Yeah, that squidding pasta really pops the mm-hmm. uh, look of the a
5: Halloween-y flavor.
0: You get some chunks in there and it's <laughs> all very visceral and could be a heck of a lot of fun. I know. Or, you know, you could just go for the waffle wafers. <laughs> it and goes a,
5: super Catholic. Honestly. And a
0: bottle of red. Yeah. And uh, maybe have your own midnight mass.
5: Yeah, right.
0: All right, Miss Ann, I sure do love you.
5: I love you too. Thanks for um, letting me watch Midnight Mass over and over and over again.
0: Look forward to, to many, many more movies and dinners with you in the future.
5: Yeah, I'm looking forward to next year's Mike Flanagan Halloween treat.
0: What could it possibly be? I,
5: don't know. I can't wait.
0: All of the best scary stories start with the same premise. This is a true story. It happened right here in these woods a long time ago. A friend of mine had an uncle who had a friend who was hitchhiking not far from here. You know what I'm talking about. Stories like the Amityville Horror, The Conjuring, and The Blair Witch Project all trade on the premise that what you're about to hear is a true story. I read Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire when I was in college, and there was part of me that absolutely believed that it was a work of nonfiction. Yes, I thought there may not be many vampires running around, but if there are any, a few of them would certainly be hanging out in New Orleans. The real true story, however... The true story that lurks beneath the jump scares and the gore. The true story that's inevitable and inescapable. The one that motivates and terrifies us in equal measure all throughout our lives is the true story of our own impending demise. And in October, we're invited to run toward the fear that truth inspires. We might willingly submit ourselves to haunted houses wherein we witness scenes of unspeakable horror. We may watch and listen to the stories of Halloween, which, interestingly enough, are often tales of the living dead. Zombies, after all, are just humans like us that become infected with the virus that kills them, but then brings them back to life. And suddenly, they can't be killed anymore— and they're hungry for human flesh. Mummies are zombies of a different stripe, and a lot scarier to me because mummified remains actually exist. What if these perfectly preserved pharaohs reanimated and came back to life to punish us for desecrating their final resting places? The story of the Frankenstein monster is one of grave robbing sewing together the remains of several dead bodies and applying a significant bolt of electricity to bring the unholy creation back to life. And vampire lore is the lore of immortals who roamed the earth in an endless night, feeding on the blood of the living and occasionally recruiting others into their ranks. Halloween is the time of year where we're invited to play in the dark to wander whistling through the graveyard that will one day be our home. We may flaunt our bravery in the face of the inevitable, or we may choose to find a giddy thrill in submitting to our fears. Either way, Halloween invites us to playfully draw close to the thin veil that separates us from those who have gone before. As Halloween transitions into the Dia de los Muertos celebrations of Central and South America, all of the zombies, mummies, ghouls, and ghosts fade away. And we're left only with skeletons. These skeletons, however, are not to be feared. They're meant to be welcomed, embraced. They're family, after all. The ones who have gone before us. We adorn altars with candles, marigolds, and photos of them. We set out their favorite food and drink in order to entice them to come back into our homes for a night of celebration and remembrance. Children decorate skulls made of sugar. Adults paint their faces to look like skeletons, and everyone parades through the streets, dancing and whooping up a storm. Todos Somos Calaveras is a phrase commonly heard this time of year. It's from the cartoon satirist José Guadalupe Posada, whose drawings of skeletons and extravagant outfits are instantly recognizable. The phrase means, we are all skeletons. Underneath this flesh and muscle, and protecting our internal organs, is a structure that unites us all. In the skeleton state... You can't tell one person from another. My son once made a beautiful painting of a skeleton family. It features two grown skeletons lovingly cradling a baby skeleton. You can't tell who's the mom and who's the dad. Maybe it's two moms, maybe it's two dads, and the baby's gender is also indecipherable. What you can tell, though, what you can feel, is that this is a family that loves each other, It's as tender and caring a tableau as you've ever seen. True story. Underneath all of our differences, todos somos calaveras. We're all skeletons. Here's another turn of phrase that unifies us. It also involves skeletons. Let's talk about the skeletons we keep in the closet. The phrase is metaphorical, of course. It just means deep, dark secrets. But let's lean into the metaphor, see if we can't tease out a deeper meaning. What would it actually take to create a skeleton in a closet? Well, we'd have to have stuffed or left a fresh body in there at some point a very long time ago and we'd have to have been quite diligent to ignore the overwhelming stench as the body slowly decayed. Perhaps a pack of rats arrived to nibble the flesh off the bones. Perhaps worms slithered in through the floorboards and did their part to turn the body's soft bits into fertilizer that produced rancid mushrooms for a while. Did a swarm of flies occupy the closet? One can only imagine that they did. And what did we do about it? Nothing. We lived with it. We rolled with it. We suffered through it. And eventually, after a very long while, the smells and the vermin and the worms and the flies all went away. But it's never really gone, is it? It's still in there. And the remains are a reminder of the things we've done that we'd rather not look at. As we move through the darkening of the year, as we practice facing our fears with a light heart, it might be a good time to address the skeletons we keep in our closets. Like the skeletons that hold up our bodies, we all have them. Some of those hidden secrets may make us feel mildly uncomfortable, and some may be truly debilitating. It may take a partnership with a professional or time with a group of people who have dealt with similar skeletons and have learned how to clean out their closets in order for us to find the strength to even open the door. But that strength is worth seeking. For if we're not willing to face and accept the skeletons we are made of, both literally and symbolically, we're not in touch with the fullness of who we are. On the Sunday after Dia de los Muertos, many of the celebrants make their way to church to observe All Saints Day, where once again we are invited to remember those who have passed on. The service often contains a tradition that's borrowed from the great Salvadoran hero, Archbishop Oscar Romero, who would take a moment during Mass each week to read out the names of those in his country who had been disappeared or killed by government militias in the previous week. After each name was read out, the congregation would reply, presente, meaning even if these people aren't with us in person, they are present with us in our hearts and minds. This tradition is now practiced in churches all across the world on All Saints Day. But you don't have to go to church to participate in the act of remembering or to think about how you'd like to be remembered. I find my memories of loved ones include little things, like a balloon my Grandpa Charlie gave me. Presente. The coffee with milk and ginger snaps that I shared with my college mentor, Doc Larson. Presente. My Grandpa Ray's love of Les Paul and the ink spots and the way he and my Grandma Betty danced together at the Carnation Plaza that one summer night. Presente. My Uncle John's laughter and tears, and his love of Coca-Cola. Presente. Breaking into the Freud Playhouse at UCLA with Timur Otis, so we could have a warm place to sleep. Presente. Being presente after you're gone won't be about your grand accomplishments, and I have nothing against your grand accomplishments. I hope you have lots of them. But it's more likely that funny little drawing you made in a birthday card. Or the way you and your bestie couldn't stop laughing at that sleepover that one time. Or the way you made someone feel seen and heard just by sitting quietly and listening. Or the batch of cookies... The package of flaky flicks, the bike ride home after the movie. These are the things that make you presente to your friends and family. This is a true story. We're all heading to the same destination. It's the quality of the journey that matters. What will you carry with you? And what can you let go of? How do you want to remember? your journey. How do you want it to be remembered?
3: He said his hip talks to him and it's ready to rain. He's had a little no. Feeling no pain And it gets like this It feels like talking He said he took some shrapnel At the Bay of Pigs Lost two fingers on a gopher ring you, You gotta watch him He'll take off walking Some folks say he's lost his mind Just running out of time He said, this old bag of bones ain't really me There's a lot more standing here than what you see He said, my back is bending low But my spirit's flying free this old bag of bones ain't Like it's my last, time won't keep, it goes so fast You better do the best that you can do He said life's a tune, you whistle in the dark You get it right, you get a little spark And then the sun comes up, and it all dawns on you this old bag of bones ain't really me. Real. There's a lot more standing here than what you see You see, my back is bending low But my spirit's flying free This old bag of bones ain't really. said my back is bending low but my spirit's flying free this old bag of bones I ain't really me oh this old bag of bones I ain't really me
0: That's our lounge. Wishing you all the delicious treats with a healthy sprinkling of thrilling tricks this fall season. Here's the Who Did What. Our lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. John Ballinger is our musical director. He played, sang, and produced Remember Me and Bag of Bones. His album Blue Room is available on Spotify. Matt and Carol Olmos wrote The Devil Is Real and you heard Matt perform it. Double Batch Daddy wrote and performed beneath a low, waning moon. Be sure to catch them at the Culver City Art Walk on Saturday, October 9th at the Sherborne Stage just before 5 o'clock that afternoon. And special thanks to the incomparable Rose Portillo. Don't miss her Dia de los Muertos Ofrenda installation at Avenue 50 Studio in Highland Park through the beginning of November. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with more stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge.